The diamond I realized is that I have to be Empathy Museum presents A Mile in My Shoes. These shoes are black ankle boots with a gold buckle and a zip on the side. They have a little bit of grass on them and just enough heel to make sure you're comfortable. These shoes belong to Taban. This is her story. I think I was suppressing a lot of my past on purpose. I didn't I wasn't ready to deal with it. I wasn't ready to confront it and I didn't know what to do with it. I remember I remember quite a lot to be honest, but they're more of images and flashbacks because I was only four at the time. I remember playing in my grandmother's garden with my doll and there was like a loud rattling knock on the garden gate and it startled me and my uncle came running out. So I ran to him and stood in front of him and when he opened the door it was two Iraqi soldiers, so Saddam Hussein soldiers, and I could sense um, the tenseness of my uncle, and they asked for my mum. So I'm Kurdish from the northern Iraq part of Kurdistan, and at that time, early 80s, Saddam Hussein didn't want any Kurds to be identified as Kurds or be politically active. He actually just wanted a pan-Arab state. And so anyone that was fighting for the Kurdish cause of the Kurdish identity and protecting that would be killed. And my father was a Peshmerga, which is a freedom fighter fighting in the mountains. He was also a poet. And being a Kurd with a pen and a gun, he was considered to be extremely dangerous. And so he was on the most wanted list. And the way they would try and capture these men to kill them is to capture the families. My mum came out and they said, we'll just take you in for questioning and we'll take her as well. And the car was blacked out when they opened it. My grandparents were there, so my dad's parents. Everyone tried to beg for them to take the adults, but to leave the kid. They didn't listen, so they took me with them. When we stepped out of the car, it was very dusty and empty. And there was two buildings, and one of the buildings was for women and children, and the other one was for men. My grandfather was separated from us and he was actually tortured in the men's prison while we were in prison. And when we walked into the women and children's prison, all the women and children had kind of come to the small windows to see who was new and who was coming. And when we walked in, it was packed. It was absolutely packed with women and kids. And it absolutely stunk of urine. Like, I remember walking in and smelling that stench of urine because obviously there's so many people there. No one would give space away. Everyone had become very territorial because there was no space. 
we were in that prison for about two weeks and the reason why we were in there for two weeks is because our names were called to be buried alive. I was holding my grandmother's hand. It was day. You had like buses for us to be herded onto and then you had diggers in front of the buses. It's all part of the torture, so you see what's going to happen. And the adults all screaming and just begging the soldiers not to take them. And then when everyone was kind of herded onto the buses, it just... It went into silent reciting of prayers. And the buses drove and halfway through it stopped and outside of the buses you could hear something going on but you couldn't figure out what it was and then the buses drove again so nobody knew anything and once it stopped the second time the doors opened and these two men appeared i don't remember their faces i wish i could see them now because they're the reason why we're alive Somehow, two Kurdish men made a deal with the drivers. And they just said, we're Kurdish, we're not going to kill you. you. We're going to drive on and then let you go, but you need to basically disappear. We ended up on the road, and my grandfather stopped a taxi, who happened to be one of his old students. My granddad was a teacher. So he just said, Please don't ask any questions. Can you just sneak us back into the city without asking any questions? But we didn't go back to my grandparents' house. We went to my mum's stepsister's house because it's the least likely place they would search. But when we walked in, everyone was wearing black and they had a funeral and they were mourning our death because they thought that we'd been buried alive. And my dad had somehow sent a message to tell us to leave the city and not stay in that city. We left to go to the south of Iraq, where my mum's stepbrother was. But that meant that we were housebound for three months. And then after three months, my mum put her foot down and just sent a message to my dad and said, we're going to die if we don't leave. You need to figure out a way of getting us out of here. The plan was to reach Iran for safety, because at that time, Iran was accepting Kurds. But you had the Iran and Iraq war at the same time, so all the bombs were being dropped in the rural areas. In territory unsuitable for armoured columns, Iraq's generals resorted to shelling suspected Kurdish positions. And it would mean that sometimes you stay in one village or you're forced to stay in one particular area because you're trapped and there's nowhere to go, there's too much bombing. Or you'd stay because my dad was like still fighting or protecting or he'd gone off to do something, so we had to wait for him. The multiple rocket launcher was another formidable It just extended that period to a year. Like we, we were on the run for about 12 months. And eventually, we'd reached some point where the way you would cross the border was on horseback, but you'd have to do it at night so nobody sees. But the mountain was so steep and the horses would kind of slip at points. And I just, I still remember clinging on to my mum thinking, oh, we're going to fall off this mountain and the horse is going to trip. But we just held on so tight. And eventually we reached Iran and we reached safety. But the story doesn't really end there because my dad wasn't with us. 
We made it ahead of him and he was to follow. On the route of following, this incident happened. At that time, Saddam Hussein hired a husband and wife. And because they were Kurdish, these Peshmergas wouldn't suspect anything. And because the invite was for a feast of food, and we're very hospitable with food, so nobody suspected anything. Everyone sat down to eat, and they put the poison in a yogurt drink that we've got, which we call Mastal. It was thallium, and my dad and two other men had drunk enough to be critical, so they instantly started deteriorating on the spot. And the ones that hadn't drunk, they brought him to the family home that we were staying at. He couldn't walk, his hair was falling out. But by the morning, Amnesty International had picked up on the story and got him to get medical treatment in the UK. But then we couldn't come out. We had to wait for my dad to be alive and for him to do all the paperwork and help us to come over. So we ended up living in Tehran for a whole year. So he arrived in 87, and then we arrived in 88 when I was six. So as a teenager, I had I struggled massively with the identity crisis of being split between two cultures and trying to find yourself and, you know, being a normal teenager as it is. But I do remember that I didn't really touch on my past at all. And now, you know, most of my friends, they knew where I was from and bits of it, but they never knew the details of, you know, things that I'm sharing now. I think I was suppressing a lot of my past on purpose. I, didn't, I wasn't ready to deal with it. I wasn't ready to confront it. And I didn't know what to do with it. I was working in the city in 2014 and I was asked to do a genocide remembrance talk and it was at the House of Lords and it was about 200 people in the room. You had ministers, lords, other survivors, my family there. So it was really daunting and I'd never publicly spoken about my experience ever. At first I got really, really scared and then suddenly, halfway through, I just realised hold on to ban that actually happened to you that is your story that's 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 you for the first time I think I was able to own it and I looked around the room and some of the survivors were crying and I realized it's not just me I'm not the only survivor and I'm not the only person that I'm retelling this story for it's actually happened to me 188,000 people died I was very lucky, my family were very lucky, but a lot of people weren't. And it was at the end of the speech that I realised that I needed to do something connected with my past. So I set up the Lotus Flower and we support women and girls that have been impacted by conflict and displacement in northern Iraq, Kurdistan. So in 2014, ISIS had gone into our region. So you have 2.6 million people displaced and that's including Syrian refugees. So anything related to livelihoods and education, mental health, human rights, peace building, we will implement projects in those centres. And a lot of our trainers for the sessions are from within the camp. 
And that comes from knowing that even though you're displaced, even though you don't have a home, even though you've lost everything, you still have skills, you still have a history, you still have an identity. That cannot be stripped away from you just because of the circumstances that you've gone through. And that understanding is so deeply within me that all I can think about doing is just providing the opportunities and opening the doors and the rest is up to them. And to this date, I think we've helped 7,000 women and girls in three women and girls centres in different camps. It's coming from such a different place when you've lived and experienced it and you want to kind of give back in that way. It becomes a purpose, but a really deeply ingrained purpose that it just makes you realise that you went through that particular experience to understand what this person's going through now. And what I've gone through was for a reason. For me, the lotus flower is a flower that grows in muddy water and it rises up daily to blossom into something beautiful. And it represents women and girls that have struggled, but actually given the right tools, you will rise up strong and beautiful every day. Taban's story was produced by Rose de Larabaiti. Her shoes are part of a growing collection of footwear hosted by the Empathy Museum's A Mile in My Shoes exhibition. The, moment we hit our stride, the shoes and stories come from all over the world. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram to find out where we go next. <laughs>